you're listening to the Grace in Real Time podcast. I'm your host, Paula Mazza, and together with my producer and husband, Jamie, we're exploring conversations about mental health, faith, and the importance of presenting our most honest and authentic selves when it comes to life in community. No tidy bows here, just real talk about real life in real time. This conversation is ongoing, and we are so glad you have chosen to be a part of it. So take a deep breath, settle in, and enjoy today's episode of Grace in Real Time. Hey, Jamie. Hey, Paula. How's it going? It's going well. How are you doing? I am doing fantastic. You know, this is the first week of my second year of my doctorate program. And I'm really, really excited for this semester because I'm taking a class where I get to start working on some of the early drafts of some of the chapters I'll be writing for my dissertation. Oh, that's great. How are you feeling about it? I am excited and I'm also super curious. This is kind of a semester where things start coming into focus and I have to pay close attention, which for somebody who has ADHD, (laughs) that's a tall cup of water there. But I'm excited. I know that God has interesting things up ahead and I look forward to doing some exploring. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I think we shared on our last show that we were heading off to Florida and CPC, the Children's Pastor Conference. Yeah. So we've been back from that for a couple of weeks now, Mm -hmm. but that was a great time. It really was. God was present in just some really fantastic ways. Yeah, we even got to meet a few of you, a few of our listeners out there. And so that was fun to be introduced and to, um, you know, see some faces and to start hearing more stories of people who are listening to our podcast and wanting to share what's going on in their lives. Yeah, it really is profound to hear your stories and to hear how hearing other people's stories has affected you and given you maybe some confidence or some courage or encouragement. Well, you've got a new friend that you're going to introduce us to on this show. Yes, I am thrilled to introduce listeners to a new friend of mine. His name is Ross Cochran, and he is the content manager for Awana. And we actually were introduced to each other by somebody who I originally met through CPC, Mark Campbell. And you'll hear a funny little story around that introduction once we get going. So let's get to it. Hi, Ross Cochran. Hi, Paula Mazza. It is great (laughs) to see you again. Yeah, thank you so much for being on the show. Now, we're kind of new friends, aren't we? Mm -hmm. I didn't know you existed, and you probably didn't know I existed uh, maybe two months ago. Yeah, and I'll be honest with you, Paula. When I first was given your name by our now mutual friend, Mark Campbell, I had a typo in when I put it in the list. So for a long time, I thought there was someone named Paul Mazza out there. Oh, I'm sure there is. (laughs) <laughs> who was who was going to be an expert in uh, all things preteen mental health. And then I couldn't find them and had to go back yeah. to Mark. And he was like, no, it's Paula, man. I was like, oh, there's Paula. Oh, so. there we go. <laughs> I love it. Well, Paul Mazza, wherever you are out there, we just wish you the best. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. And thank you for listening. <laughs> thank you for listening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's great. So you had me on as an interviewee for your podcast, which we'll talk about down the road here, but uh, Resilient Discipleship Podcast. And in that conversation, in the introduction, we discovered that we've got some similar hearts on some things and that um, we became very fast friends, I think. Mm -hmm. For folks who are listening, Paula is the kind of friend who you can talk to when you are dealing with a cold that is not COVID. Uh, And I know that because that's that was our first conversation. If you have snot running from your nose. Don't shy away. We're good. You're a very uh, easy person to talk to, Paula. I'm excited to be here. Oh, so fun. Great. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself. Who is Ross Cochran? Give us some context. Sure. So I am a dorky dad from the suburbs (laughs) of Chicago. My wife, Lauren, and I, we have two kids, an almost six-year-old named Abigail and a -a two-and-a-half-year-old named Isaac. And I have the privilege of working as the content manager at Awana. 
Um, my primary responsibility is all things audio. So I get to host the Resilient Disciples podcast and produce a couple of podcasts tied to our products, the Awana Clubs podcast, as well as the Bright curriculum podcast. So Awana oh. offers a Sunday curriculum and I get to produce those. And it's one of the best things about this season of life for me and how God has provided is before I started at Awana, I was a dorky dude who was really nervous and cared a lot about the future of the faith and had no idea what to do about it. Hmm. And then I wind up getting dropped in an organization that literally is devoted to helping shape the future of the faith and shape that conversation and partner with the local church and how we do that. So that sort of like central tension, that deep parenting insecurity, uh, it is one of the greatest privileges of my life that I get to try to play a role in helping shape that. That is beautifully worded. What a gift. I'm guessing over the next 40 minutes or so, we'll hear a little bit more about the evolution of oh, um, yeah. of getting to that place. Anytime somebody qualifies themselves as nerdy, dorky, there's always a little thing in my head that goes, oh, you are my people. <laughs> so tell me, what is it about you and personality-wise that you oh, would sure. jump to dorky, quirky, uh, <laughs> goofy? So yeah, no, uh, one, I have very little rhythm. <laughs> And uh, I tuck in a lot of shirts. No, uh, the thing for me, the reason I would use the word dorky is the best example of this is how I approach comedy. So my dad was a stand-up comedian or is a stand-up comedian. He was in, was in radio for 40 years. He has his own podcast called Live From My Office. Thanks for listening. But as a result, growing up with a dad who's in comedy, I approach comedy the way that most people listen to music. So I have a pretty obtuse ear when it comes to music. I'm very obtuse when it comes to art. But I will listen to a joke and dissect the science of it, try to figure out how it came to be. I'll watch comedy and try to guess the punchline like in a little game with myself. I'm pretty insufferable to watch a Netflix comedy special with. This, this I know about myself. <laughs> um, but it's such for me, it's this like gifting that I see from God of how you can provide a little bit of light to the world. You know, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. My wife is an empath. She is so empathetic for folks. And is able to walk through really hard stuff. And frankly, I don't have the patience. Um, mm -hmm. I am not gifted that way. But I, what I can do is make individual days along that journey a little bit better. I'm also super into Harry Potter. So yes. you know, I think it's the whole, that whole spectrum uh, qualifies for dorky. I always love when I'm getting to know somebody, even people I've known for a long time, our conversations don't often go to childhood or to what was your family of origin like? I'm always particularly interested in the preteen years and what was that experience sure. like for you, especially being the child of a stand-up comic. I wonder you know, how that plays in, but just however you no. would answer that question. Give us some context so there. I, to this day, have an amazing relationship with my parents. They're my heroes. They... Both of them, my dad especially, grew up in extremely challenging circumstances and just live their life in response to providing essentially the exact opposite experience for my sister and I. So mm. grew up in an extremely loving home, an extremely we-can-do-anything kind of environment. What was interesting for me with preteen, I think in particular, was I was just having this conversation about my own daughter because today's generation of kids, like six and under, are realizing things much faster than we did, mm. where world's kind of hard. And sometimes you have birthday parties planned and they get changed because of the pandemic and things like that, right? That was just never part of my experience. And I think similarly for me, preteen is when I began to discover, oh, the world's kind of hard. That, you know, mm -hmm. that sheltered childhood experience began to break. And then I went through this experience of just not having like a ton of I had plenty of people close to me, but just not really feeling close to any of them. And then I went through puberty and all of a sudden I was the funny kid because I went from this like sort of quiet introvert to being accepted socially and discovering that I liked making people laugh. And that jarring kind of from like 11 to 14 road really shaped, I found it shaping a lot of my high school experience because I knew I was secure with my family. I knew I was able to always have this comfortable place to land. But I often found myself seeking out people who didn't have that experience and trying mm -hmm. to figure out how to help them. And that, that sounded a little too grandiose. But the I think probably more of the truth that of being someone who was 12 and using, you know, I feel statements, right? Right. Like the ability sure. to be like, sure. Conscious of that, that I can now as an adult trace back to it's because I knew how secure I was in my own home. You know, in our own home, we were the funny family, right? Like my dad is a radio host and a comedian. 
I pride myself on making people laugh and my mom might be the funniest person I've ever met. Right. The, <laughs> that was what we brought to people. That was, you know, when we had dinner parties, that was our thing. When we went around the table and said like two things that you know, our our version of that was two things you did today. And it was always a sort of a race to see which one of us was going to turn it into a sarcastic joke first. Uh, <laughs> so that was really like laughing and, and humor and levity was really kind of the core value of our house. And then beyond that, it was a pretty typical suburban experience. I was playing a lot of sports, none of which particularly well, um, (laughs) and trying to figure out what I was good at in school. Yeah, I really think that's remarkable. One of the things I wonder just in my studies and my school studies and reading and stuff is how much a firm foundation from home is a trajectory changer and to be able to reflect on your adolescent years and identify some self-realization along the way. And, you know, it's very natural to try on different personalities and try different Mm -hmm. things on, but it sounds like you were noticing what worked early. Oh yeah. I remember a freshman gym teacher of all people just completely out of context, walking up to me being like, you're like the oldest soul I've ever met. Um, (laughs) which was a weird thing for a teacher to say to a, a 14 year old. Sure. That's a separate conversation. But yes, that's exactly what it was. I understood what worked for me. And this is long before I had a real relationship with the Lord and obviously tried on plenty of personalities between now and then. But I learned very quickly what was most authentic to me. Mm. And because of the privilege of my upbringing, was able to try that out in the real world in a lot of places. And it's, you know, it's shaped me to this day and is part of the reason why I think my parents and I are still as close as we are because they have seen me evolve as an adult because of the firm foundation they made for me as a child. Mm, Wow. That's beautiful. (laughs) I I hear you say you didn't really encounter God or, um, you know, grow a faith until much later. So is it safe to say that this was outside of a faith home, that this was just, this yeah, was not, so not we just, were, but this is firm foundations mm-hmm. and family. Yeah. yeah so talk we were, about that a little uh, bit. Yeah. You know, we were priesters. We oh, yes. We would go to yes. a dear friend's Lutheran church, Christmas Eve, Easter, and then they'd come over and we'd have Christmas dinner. Like that was the routine. And we could do an entire separate episode about this, but my dad's adopted. And in the process of discovering his birth family and finding them a bunch of Hallmark movie kind of stuff there. Uh, which we can go into, but that is how we wound up getting connected to a church. So one of the things that I love to share far and wide, my uncle who's actually here right now, um, downstairs Mm. helping my wife clean. Oh, cool. Um, He is on the autism spectrum Mm. and was born with fetal alcohol syndrome and had autism before those were really labels that we would say he's in his mid sixties. And he moved out here when I was a kid, right around the sort of preteen timeline and he's an alcoholic and actually fell off the wagon while he was out here. Mm-hmm. So he disappeared. It was this big, huge kind of formative experience in my life. But before that happened, he got connected to the church that I eventually, several years later, as um, someone in college, gave my life to the Lord at. So everything that I have now as an adult, I can trace back to my uncle with autism when I was a preteen. And that wow, like such a wonderful picture of what God's grace looks like and how yeah. God uses all of us. But yeah. I was not, I came to Lord in college. So mm-hmm. that was a, we were never atheists, but I think it was this sort of, and I think my parents would say this. And if they're not, mm-hmm. and if they're listening and they're not, I apologize, but it was never a priority for the household. And sure. because we were comfortable, it never had to be. Right. I understand that. So as you grew and mature and differentiated yourself or, you know, became independent and, and moved out of the house, what was your journey like as a young adult? So there were sort of two formative things for me in high school, particularly where I was doing theater and I was doing this thing called Naperville Operation Snowball. In theater, I learned that this is a thing I'm good at. This is a thing that I can get validation from is really that sort of training ground of like, oh, I can make people laugh and I want to go to school for theater. But in Naperville Operation Snowball, I learned what it really actually means to provide it help and refuge and be a harbor for people. So that's actually where my wife and I met. But basically, it was this program that started in the 80s and sort of centered around being drug free. But by the time I got there, it was much more built around helping kids through teen issues, which is what we called it in 2009 before we all started using words like mental health, right? Right, right. And 
that was such a value driven experience for me because I got to see not only how I was able to you know redirect some of my privilege to provide harbor for folks, but it was also this experience of understanding what it meant to like be a leader, what it meant to make an impact, leave a legacy, right? I was 18 trying to figure out how I can make this program better than when I found it. And that was the kid I was, you know, when that gym teacher said, you're the oldest soul I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. That was still true when I was 18. And now yeah. when I have a six-year-old, I'm like, oh, it turns out it's genetic because she's six going on 40. So (laughs) my oldest daughter is like that. She was born. Yeah. (laughs) Uh huh. A hundred percent. So I became really passionate about helping people praise the Lord. I met a girl when I was 18 who is downstairs cleaning with my uncle. Um, (laughs) So we got to sort of not only literally, but also spiritually grow up together. And as a young adult, that's really where my relationship with the Lord started was an understanding of when he says life to the full, what does he actually mean? um, Yeah. As opposed to what my own definition of it was. Yeah. And it sounds like for you and I, God's been growing my heart and understanding of this as well, that living life to the full, you know, there's two sides of that coin. One is living life, knowing, loving, and being loved by God, Mm -hmm. right? So that's one side of the coin. But the other side of that very same coin is that loving other people and receiving God's love through people and being shaped just by somebody's presence. The back and forth is not necessarily a exchange of, I give you this and you give me that. It's this mutual shaping Mm -hmm. that happens that, that glorifies God. I think so often people see, you know, well, I serve because I love God and it's an outflowing of my serving. Mm -hmm. And that's great. That's beautiful. I think that's even short. I'm losing my word, but it truncates. It's not the full picture. It's not the full picture. And it's actually, one doesn't really exist without the other, Mm -hmm. at least not in its fullness. Completely. I mean, there's a lot this year that we can talk about of what, of God redefining what life to the full means for me personally. Mm -hmm. But the reality for me and my reading of it is it's about, the fullness of the human experience. You know, one of the great benefits to me working in the children's ministry world as someone who came to know the Lord in college is I have a lot of memory and lived experience that was good, that was separate from my relationship with the Lord. And I think a lot of folks who have been connected to the church their entire life, sometimes that's a harder understanding for them. But it's very easy for me to understand why someone doesn't have a relationship with the Lord because the world makes it so easy so easy to feel like that's not necessary and that you can get the good life and being able to distinguish between the good life and what Jesus says is the life to the full uh, is the work of my hands. Sure. You said yes to this podcast. I did. Knowing that this podcast is grace in real time. Mm Mm-hmm. And we're talking about mental health and we're, you know, exploring this for the sake of kids, but recognizing that we need to check ourselves totally. <laughs> in order to best serve our kids. So mm-hmm. I'm wondering what in this conversation inspired you to say, oh, yes, I want to contribute to this. So I think for me, what I had written down prior to this was what does it look like to have regular depression? Because I think that especially even in my experience of being a part of that snowball program, there was as anyone listening can imagine, there's a lot of hormones involved in a program that's built around mental health for teens, right? It's a retreat. We're up late. It's all this. It can feel very dramatic. And there's plenty of kids who had stories that were worthy of the intensity of that emotion. However, I, like a lot of people, spend a lot of my life thinking, well, if I don't have any trauma, if I've never been a part of a, you know, if God hasn't done a 180 in my life, then what do I have to be depressed about? And over the past year, almost quite literally, almost a year ago, God's been showing me that. So for me, bit of backstory. So I had a very particular thing happen, which was we moved out to live with my parents while we were saving money to buy our own place in September of 20, also to get childcare help. So in <laughs> November, my wife goes to care for her grandparents who both got COVID. My wife's a nurse. So she goes, comes back, is getting a test. This test is expecting it to be negative. Turns out it was positive. So all of a sudden, what was a 10-day trip becomes an 18-day trip with quarantine. And I'm mm. at home with both kids. Oh, gosh. Okay. And I had my mom. I had plenty of support, like uh, my dad, my sister. Like I had plenty of people who were there for me. But I'm going through this experience of being in my parents' house with my children without my wife, which is what would happen 
if my wife got COVID in a more serious way than she actually did. Yeah. And the way I've described it is it's like something that I didn't know I was holding up broke through. And I just, just immediately was like, oh no, I think this is what depression feels like. Now, there's a ton of grace in real time about that. You know, I was raised in an environment that was very pro therapy, even though I didn't pursue it in my childhood. I was raised in an environment that used I feel statements like I'm talking about that used that was very conscious of emotion in a way that is not true for a lot of people's experience. So I was able to identify, oh, this is not me being bummed out. This is not like the many ways that people can justify or kick the can down the road into getting help. But I still then had to go get the help. And then a way that I think a lot of the depressive symptoms manifested itself was through chronic pain. Mm. So every day for most of January, I wasn't able to really get out of bed because I had these super intense migraines. Later in the year, I wound up like my back's been bothering me ever since. So I was having all these physical issues. And what it did was it forced me to change the story that I said about myself from this guy who God had given all this privilege to and done all this protection for so that I could provide harbor to other people to now a guy who was really going through a thing. And arguably, you know, short of being a young dad and, you know, figuring out what it means to get married at a young age and all those kinds of things. It was like one of this year has been the hardest year of my life. And as a result, it's allowed me to be that much more actually relatable and empathetic to people. And when I think about the context of my kids, it, it's provided such a way for them to see me in the fullness of who I am. My daughter, who's almost six, not only does she have better handwriting than I do, but she gets that I have good days, I have bad days, I have days where I can't get out of bed, I have days where I'm super jacked and able to play with them and everything in between. Mm-hmm. And I have to believe that that is a benefit to her as she gets to be an adult that there's not this facade of dad always has it together. So that for me, when I think about this broader conversation with mental health, I think especially for men, but I think in general, we have to elevate every story about mental health to change the conversation around mental health. Right. And you use the example of you won't walk around with like a bone sticking out of your leg for six weeks. But effectively, that's what I did. You know, I was able to identify in early November oh, this is a problem. And it took three weeks of effort to get me to send an email to an online therapy service mm-hmm. to get the journey started. And of course, I'm like starting something in the beginning of December when everyone's shutting down for the year. Right. But thankfully, I got into therapy in January, got some medication in January, and was able to start feeling the difference right away, which is another privilege and another grace in real time thing. Because... Yeah. I wasn't someone who was failing a ton of medication, which is a term that I really don't like, by the way. You don't, you don't fail medication. That's not... Right. What does that mean? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I got a lot of issues with uh, a few medical terms. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but that it was something that I was able to not only see the right difference. And then again, it allowed me to begin to tell that story and help other people in their story because mm-hmm. of the way that God had protected me. You know, a friend of mine suffered from severe depression and he and I were walking through a season of suicidal ideations for him. And the thing that he's been able to pray since is God, you kept me. I need you to keep them. And I find Mm. myself praying that prayer so much more now of like, Mm. even though I never was close to that kind of darkness for lack of a better, I still feel how God kept me. And you know, whether it's my kids, my wife, my coworkers, or anybody in my community, uh, mm-hmm. God, I need you to keep them. It strikes me that you have this beautiful perspective of knowing that the care and keeping of you, mm-hmm. of your whole body. So, you know, you talk mm-hmm. about self-stewardship, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and even discipleship, mm-hmm. you know, discipleship is a full body experience, mm-hmm. right? And so when we're caring for, when we think we're caring for our souls, but neglecting our brains, Mm-hmm. or neglecting our bodies in other ways, our discipleship is truncated or it's misshaped. And I love that in your journey so far, and especially in the last year, there's a partnership. There are people in your boat. You know, you have your wife that's in your boat. You have your family that's in your boat. You have selected medical professionals who are in your boat to help you not just feel better or be better, but really to help you 
come into alignment with this unique way that God has created you in this really unique season. So how, you know, figuring out how to navigate that and do so with the best version of you. And that's part of your discipleship. I can't tell you how many people I have talked to who kind of have the idea of, well, I don't need therapists. All I need is God. Mm. Well, God is sufficient, but God often, (laughs) more often than not, chooses to work through people. And he gives people skills and talents and gifts to contribute for the sake of others. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that I'm so grateful for, for this moment coming out of particularly the isolation that COVID brought for so many folks, was that it changed the collective perception for a lot of people about what therapy is. Like I know a lot of people who are in therapy now who aren't in need of any particular medication, who aren't in need of any other professional care, but just needed an outside person to essentially call them on their junk. Right. And I had plenty of sessions like that with my therapist. This is the way that I'm seeing things. And for them to be like, are you sure about that? Right. 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 Because it's so easy to build echo chambers and uh, Mm -hmm. have everybody in your boat agree with you. For a lot of folks, there is this sort of like, I'll get to therapy when things are in crisis. Mm -hmm. And it probably was crisis for me at that point, it's probably as close to crisis as I'm going to get in my present circumstances, but it's going to the gym. And if you're going every week because your body needs Mm -hmm. every week, great. And if it's going once a month, like it is for me right now, because I went every week for essentially a year, fantastic. And one of the things that I would hope, particularly for those who are emotions weren't part of their centered of their childhood and preteen experience, like it was for me, is the amount of effort it takes to start is much more than the amount of effort during the process. To I sustain. think there is a lot of, I know I spent a lot of time going like, well, I don't, I don't want to have to Google therapy near me. Right. And mm-hmm. acting like that mm-hmm. was some big arduous task. And the reality is once I found a therapeutic fit, it was one of the best foundational experiences that God gave me. Yeah. It was this relationship that had this clear objective, this clear perspective, this clear benefit to me that God spoke through all the time. And actually, mm-hmm. one other thing about that is when I started, I did a Christian online therapy option. It was great. My wife and I are foster parents, and the therapist had adopted some kids from foster care. And I think he's probably in his early 60s. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like I've met my mentor, right? <laughs> and they're a very good clinician, and it just wasn't a good fit. Right. Just whatever it was, I was like, this isn't as beneficial. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And my therapist could not be more different than me. Mm. They are not a believer. They are, which I don't necessarily recommend for everybody, but that's a separate conversation. But they could not be more different than me, but they were a fantastic therapeutic fit for me. Yeah. So don't judge a book by its cover when it comes to finding the right therapist for you. Well, for sure. And don't assume that God doesn't have something amazing lined up just based on somebody's faith or lack of, or I guess do assume, (laughs) do it, do assume that God can do amazing things regardless of what scenario we're Uh trying to set up for ourselves. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. All things. Absolutely. Confined to the context of the kingdom. Absolutely. My goodness. Um, I wonder what, how my body would be faring if I only chose Christian doctors. Nice. You know, yeah. and, uh, or, you know, whatever, uh, well, Christian and house builders. And, and <laughs> yeah. And to bring it back to discipleship, you know, you and I talked about this a lot when you were on with me, but what can often be disheartening and is a source of a lot of my cynicism is that this is a conversation that the church should lead in. I have a friend who is on the autism spectrum. His name's Josh. He and I were good friends from elementary school through high school. And I remember my dad being blown away by watching how I interacted with him. And it was that kind of thing where I was like, one, like you're, he's adopted, but like your actual brother has autism. Why is this surprising to you for about me? But his point was basically, I wasn't seeing Josh with any sort of label. I wasn't seeing Josh as this person with autism. I was seeing Josh as like, this is who God made him to be. Mm -hmm. And I, what I'm excited about in learning about folks like you who are, whose areas of focus are ahead of where I am parenting wise, Mm -hmm. is that it seems like this generation of kids have extended that not only to folks who have any sort of intellectual challenges, but to just the mental health conversation broadly. Yeah. That it's not being this overcomplicated process of trying to figure out like who this person is. It's like, that's who God made them to be. And I can relate with them because Mm -hmm. frankly, people, life is hard enough. 
when we spend time trying to build up these walls between each other, it's just making things harder than it needs to be. And I feel like I'm hopeful that our my kids will be so much better than me at recognizing each person they interact with as an image bearer of the God, as opposed to trying to put a label on it beforehand. Amen. The conversation shifted, not far enough, but I do hope that the church can lead in that for you know, the kids that are in the children's wing of our ministries. Oh, absolutely. And even for families, one of the things that we identified at our church a while back is that we were great at serving the individual who needed something. We were great at serving across the world. And we were great at serving mature adults. Where we fell short quite a bit was how we were serving families, families in need. So families in crisis, how are we caring for families outside of curriculum and and, and that kind of stuff. And so we were having church-wide conversations about it. And we realized church-wide, some things systematically needed to change in order to have a shift there. And that's been happening in different ways. But me, in my department, oh, I have authority (laughs) in in children and families ministries to make decisions about hiring. And so I decided to hire I mean, with the support of my staff and, you know, I didn't do this in a silo, but I got to hire somebody who their title is director of family wellness and that their whole job is to not be a replacement for therapy, of course, uh, but to help stand the gap between, Ooh, we have a problem here Mm -hmm. (laughs) and being able to actually take whatever that next step is and having somebody wait and be kind of walk you through that process. And even if therapy isn't the next step, helping families kind of identify, well, where are we at? How can I serve you? How can I help you move forward? Whatever that looks like. That's lovely. And it's, I say that as often as I can publicly because I'm like, churches, this is a good idea. Do it. Yeah. No, be like Paula's church, y'all. You know, what that makes me think of is, and this was a conversation about intervention, but the principle holds true of pay me now or pay me later. Mm. Right. Like I think so much about this conversation we have with kids and there's this sort of hesitancy to lean into some of these hard stuff with our kids or uh, try to protect them from things. And what data will show in a lot of cases that Paula knows way more about this than I do is that that junk's going to come back up. And when Mm -hmm. it comes back up, it's going to be way more expensive and traumatic and cause a lot more complications than if you're able to address it as a child. And I love the idea of someone from a church setting being able to stand in the gap for a family because so often families in crisis don't feel like they have anywhere to go. You know, I'm, I'm reminded my wife and I have been foster parents. And what I learned very quickly is being part of that system is the gap that exists for folks who are at the risk of having their kids wind up in the foster care system mm. and the services that they need. Mm. And I look around and I see, you know, here's this nonprofit on every corner that says that they are able to support them. But it so quickly, I can imagine, feels incredibly overwhelming. And you wind up not mm. doing anything because you don't know where to start. Right, you know, right. There was a friend of mine, you know, so be like Paul's church, but be like my friend, Megan, mm-hmm. because we went, we're going through a crisis moment related to my dad's health a few years ago. And I had a bunch of people, you know, I'm sending out the prayer texts, I'm doing the thing. And I have several people who mean really well, who are like, let me know if you need anything. Right. And yeah. putting that burden on me to be able to articulate what I need. And what Megan said was, Hey, I'm going to do this church responsibility that you're, you usually do, but you're not going to do it this week because you're dealing with this crisis. So I'm just going to do it. Right. And wow. she saw that need and she was able yeah. to fill that need. She stood in the gap for me. Yeah. Yeah. Until that crisis temperature lowered enough where I would have been able to be, then be like, Oh man, I got to make sure that in that case, the prayer team was scheduled. She already took care of that. So yeah. Yeah. There's so many options or so many opportunities to stand in the gap like that. Absolutely. And that's one of my, really one of my hopes is that we don't necessarily need to have a particular person on staff that's a point person because our church is discipled to be that for each other. Mm. And it's normalized. You know, the church has become a place where we champion each other's mental health and physical health and and seeing that as part of their discipleship and the overall gift of being in community with each other. That's the hope. And that's a beautiful example of that. Mm -hmm. I know that the word resilient means a lot to you (laughs) and it means a lot to um, Awana. One of the things that I love about your podcast, and I would recommend um, listeners listen to it. I actually didn't know it existed until I was introduced to Ross. And then once I um, started 
listening, I've been consumed. Um, there, there is so much really fantastic forward thinking there. The interviews are great. One of the things that I realized as I'm listening to it is that part of what you're doing, I think, is redefining the word resilient. I often hear people say, oh, well, kids are resilient. I actually talked about this in my last podcast with Michaela White. We were talking about this word resilient and how we tend to assume that kids are resilient when the truth is maybe they don't have the words of vocabulary like you did, Mm. you know, to express what it is that they're feeling. And so rather than being vocal about whatever is going on, they tuck it away and then have this closet to unpack (laughs) later Mm -hmm. in life. And I think one of the gifts that your podcast brings is redefining the word resilient and seeking true resiliency for kids, that resiliency in knowing who they are and whose they are Mm -hmm. and why they are especially during the years when those years are all about discovery. I hadn't thought about it that way before. I think for us, you know, just to speak for myself, one of the things that is so clear to me is that my daughter is going to grow up in a very different church than the one that I would have grown up in had my parents been more active churchgoers when I was a kid. Yeah. And the reason is, is because it's going to be a very different world. There was a resilient book, which out of the book came the podcast. The authors sort of use this language of the church of the year 2050. Mm-hmm. They describe what 2050 is going to look like, what it's going to feel like, and therefore what the church is going to have to be like in order to respond. And I think that to bring it all the way back to preteen mental health, the preteen who is a part of the ministry right now, they have to be able to know whose they are and who they are. Because mm-hmm. to use my own story, they will grow up in an environment where it will be increasingly easy to be apathetic to the gospel. It'll be increasingly easy for them to think that they can go and figure out their problems by just having a really good conversation with their friend. Because rather than embracing all that God has to offer, like professional help. Um, And that sort of definition of resilience is going to be so critical for people. And it is different than how we understand it previously because... It's not just about getting knocked down and getting back up. It's about living and thriving. Right. You know, John Tyson talks about this, the thriving in Daniel thrived in Babylon. He was a part of that world, but he was thriving. And Mm -hmm. my personal view is that kids are going to have to get there. And it's our job as old people right now to help them get there. Right. Absolutely. Well, as an interviewer, you've heard a lot of stories from a lot of people over time Mm -hmm. and a lot of perspectives. You've interviewed a lot of people who have some great wisdom and knowledge about what the state of the union is, Mm -hmm. you know, looking out, (laughs) looking at at the landscape and (laughs) seeing uh, what is and what ought. And so I wonder, as you have processed that and continue to process, I'm sure what you've been Mm -hmm. hearing and listening, and especially in light of this conversation, um, I have Mm -hmm. two questions. What do you find yourself encouraged by? And what do you find yourself impatient for? Oh, man. The impatient conversation is the mental health conversation. Hmm. I think that I continuously have to remind myself that everybody didn't have the upbringing that I have. Hmm. You know, my wife used this phrase for when we were foster parents of we had to make the choice to redirect our privilege and be willing to be inconvenienced for the sake of a child. Mm-hmm. But there's this fantastic moment when we were in training where at the time for the state of Illinois, it was something to the effect of like 39 hours of training to be a foster parent. Wow. And someone was like, it's 39 hours. And what I wanted to say was, yeah, for a kid, you know, I spent a lot more <laughs> right. time than one week of work uh, <laughs> preparing for my biological children. Like, what do you think? Right. I didn't understand why that was such a big thing for that person. But where we have to be able to get to is a place where not only is this conversation embraced, but like we've talked about where the church is leading, you know, uh, Mark Matlock, who does a lot of work with Barnard Group Hitch, does a lot of work with a lot of organizations. He's been a guest several times and he articulated this tension really well between essentially, you know, boomers and Gen Z and Alpha about how it's incumbent on the older and the oldest generations in the church to look at the conversation that our kids are having around mental health and not be jealous by it, but to Mm. embrace it. Mm. 
right? Mm-hmm. Because it was not things that were offered to them. They were told to mm-hmm. get back up, pull themselves up by the bootstraps, et cetera. Yeah. And at the same time, it is incumbent on the youngest in our church to recognize that the fact that they can have this conversation the way that they're having it is a privilege and mm-hmm. have a greater sense of empathy for the older members in their environment. And that empathy and that vulnerability is what makes the church look different as we continue to progress. Yeah. Yeah. But by far, the most encouraging thing for me is watching and hearing stories about just how far people go for the sake of kids, mm-hmm. whether it's their own kids or whether it's kids in their community. And it can even be, we had George Barna on several months ago now, but he literally said, and this is sort of classic him. He said, if you are going to invest dollars, stop wasting your money on adults. If you're going to spend <laughs> money, spend it on kids. If you have to spend it on adults, spend it on parents and grandparents. Mm. Now, he's obviously a social researcher. He's coming at it right. from a very specific perspective and worldview. However, right. what I love about that is he's going all out for the future of the faith. When I think about the environment that my kids are going to grow up in and the church that my kids are going to grow up in, it is so encouraging that no matter how people are wired in what yeah. their various area of expertise or work of their hands is, that there are people out there who are going to be willing to go all out. And the word we would use is be a loving, caring adult for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, I think about just really simply, I was 21 when I became a Christ follower. My kid is going to grow up in a home that's centered around a relationship with Jesus. And if I'm privileged enough to be able to see them give their life to the Lord, they're going to have decades, if not more, more time with the Lord than mm-hmm. I did. Mm-hmm. And they're, I can't wait to watch what God does through them because yeah. of that added time. Yeah. Beautiful. What is your biggest, um, you may have just answered that, but I'll ask, what is your biggest hope for the church? What do you wish people understood? Maybe those are two different questions. I'm not sure. What do you wish people understood and what is your biggest hope for the church? So I think we as a church have to be willing to be more vulnerable than we historically are. I think the story of Jesus is the most compelling story that has ever happened in history. And yet sometimes we act like that's not the case. And sometimes we act like we're supposed to have it all together because we have a relationship with Jesus or that he said, rather than saying, you know, you will have trouble. He said, everything's going to be fine. (laughs) And not only do we have to live our lives in accordance to what he actually said, but I think we have to be willing to tell other people, you know, I think about those who are not part of the church right now and the extreme lack of empathy and vulnerability that they see in the church. Because so many of the loudest voices in the room, the church has for too long allowed them to write the narrative about what she is. And in conversations like mental health, in every sort of nuanced conversation, we have to be able to lead with our vulnerability and lead with our brokenness and boast and our weakness in order for the narrative to change. And I see that in kids most. I see kids being able to be incredibly open about the things that aren't right. And it's time for us old people to follow their example. Yeah, that's beautiful. And very, very true. I couldn't agree more. Well, Ross, thank you so much for being on the show. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you so much, Paula. It was a pleasure. Well, Paula, that was a great conversation with Ross. I really enjoyed getting to know him a little bit. I think he's very thoughtful. He's interviewed a lot of people, and I think he's got a good read on the pulse of what's going on out there and especially in our churches. Yeah, I agree. I was struck by how in tune he seemed to be, just the depth of his perception of what's going on and analysis of what he sees from where he sits the way he was able to dial in the importance of normalizing these conversations to even recognize the gift that that was from his parents while he was growing up and to be able to pass that on, keep it going. Yeah. Was there anything in particular that stood out to you as something that related to maybe something you've gone through? Well, I don't know how many of our listeners started out listening to the trailer of this podcast, But one of the things I say there is recognizing the importance of bringing our most authentic selves to each other, to community. And that requires a degree of vulnerability that isn't always 
easy to lean into. And so, you know, to be able to lead out of that vulnerability in our brokenness is really quite remarkable. For me, being open and honest about some of my unique wiring, some of the unique ways that God created me, requires quite a bit of vulnerability. And it's just recently that I've been able to say in public, especially in front of people I don't know who don't already know me and know my heart, to say, hey, I actually have an anxiety disorder. And then not immediately think to myself, oh, I've just exposed all my brokenness and now you know how weak I am and, you know, want to go hide in the corner. Or now you know how awkward I am and now this explains my awkwardness and now I'm going to be even more awkward. At CPC actually was one of the first times that I've stood in front of people and said that out loud and not been immediately swept into a wave of, oh gosh, I just said that out loud and then scanning for looks on people's faces. I actually said it and then almost immediately forgot that I had said it and just moved on with what I had to say. To me, that speaks of the goodness of normalizing things and being comfortable in your own skin and recognizing that, you know what? I am loved, period, because I know that I am loved and I can stand confidently in that. I think that helps others know that they are also loved and that they can stand confidently in that as well. Oh, absolutely. We've been talking a lot about this. I think it's a, another thread that flows through each of the shows, but it's about sharing stories. Mm -hmm. And I think that when we share our stories with each other, it introduces the concept that we're very similar and we're going through similar experiences. Right. We're not as unique in our woes as we think we are. <laughs> Right. When we get in our silos, we think, why am I the only person that this is happening to? Right. And that's not true. Right. Once you start sharing your stories, you realize, oh, there's a lot of people out there that are going through similar things that I am. So if we can be patient with each other and encouraging to each other, I think that will help us step into the vulnerabilities. And even though it feels scary, start sharing those stories. Yeah, I've been struck by how many men in particular that I've been in conversation with who, once we start talking about depression in different ways, will say, I have battled depression. And Ross is one of them. And I know you're very vocal about it. And I can't tell you how many people recently I have talked to lately, men in particular, who, once we start talking about it, say, oh, yeah, me, I do too. And so I, I wonder, Jamie, what does that look like for you in terms of leaning into being vulnerable, especially while at the same time, depression is very much a part of your daily walk? Well, I wouldn't say that I am very vocal about fighting depression, but I am always willing to talk to somebody who might ask me about it. Sure. And since you asked. <laughs> <laughs> My introverted husband. <laughs> now, I was thinking about this recently. I think we had a conversation the other day about it. And vulnerability has been something I've been working on, especially in the last year. Some people listening out there know, but not everybody knows, that I have my own podcast. It's called The Summer Hill Shuffle. And I've been doing that podcast for three years on my own. Before that, it was a show that I worked on together with a neighbor of mine. Starting about three years ago, I said, you know what? I want to really work on my voiceover skills my abilities to speak into a microphone and to edit a podcast and all that. And so I really dedicated my time and effort towards that particular show. And I don't know, I think I do a fairly decent job. <laughs> you do a great job. In <laughs> fact, one of the number one comments I get regarding this podcast is how much people enjoy hearing your voice and what you have to say. Well, coming to that point has been a journey. Sure. I got connected with a voiceover artist several years ago. His name's Joel Weldon. And Joel offered some voiceover classes teaching a method he calls the true you method, where mm. you're getting in touch with your true voice. And I was really hesitant at first. I wasn't sure how this was going to go. And you know, we're getting on Zoom calls and having to perform scripts in front of other people. And did we mention you are an introvert <laughs> through and through? Right. So it's maybe a little bit more difficult for me to step out and perform these scripts in front of people. I've taken two different classes from Joel now, and I think I've grown a lot. Tremendous. And over that time, I've gotten in touch with my true voice, I think. And have been able to now confidently 
sit in front of a microphone and speak and share from the heart. And I've been getting some good feedback on that. But it, again, is a journey. I had to be vulnerable enough to be in front of people and to make mistakes and to try different things, get in touch with different emotions You know, when you're working on a voiceover of a commercial or some kind of script, you know, you want to give it a couple of takes. Try this emotion when you're saying it or try this other emotion when you're saying it. I didn't really know a whole lot about doing that when I started. You and I Mm -hmm. especially have spent a lot of time in this little sound booth that we've built exploring that together. You've been my director in in some ways where (laughs) I was like, I would try something and then you would say, "Ah, I don't know if you're quite getting it. Why don't you try that again? And giving me some ideas about how I can step into my vulnerability and really try something that I've never tried before. It's been working and I feel like I'm becoming more confident. Thanks for sharing about your uh, journey there with voiceover and your podcast. By the way, friends, if you haven't listened and you're a music lover, you have got to listen to Jamie's podcast. I learn every time I listen to it. But that's not the point. The point is that I am just in awe at the ways that I have seen Jamie grow over the years as he's allowed himself to become more vulnerable and just kind of lean into these areas of interest and growing passion with a little bit of abandon, which is very fun. It's been fun to watch. Friends, I also recommend that you listen to Ross Cochran's podcast through Awana called Resilient Disciples Podcast. And it is just fantastic. You get a lot of perspectives, a lot of different people who have a really solid pulse on what's going on in children's ministries and um, even in culture right now. So make sure to take a listen to those. Friends, I hope you've had a great time listening and that you've learned a little bit and that your heart maybe has opened up a little bit. I can't wait to share more with you next month. Thanks for listening. Listening to the Grace in Real Time podcast with your host, Paula Mazza. If you'd like to get in touch with Paula, send an email to Paula at preteenmentalhealth.com. For more information on the Preteen Mental Health Initiative, the Grace in Real Time podcast, and to get connected to mental health resources, please visit our website, preteenmentalhealth.com. <laughs>